We can open your Bibles to 1 Peter this morning, 1 Peter chapter 2. And before we return to Matthew's gospel, I felt compelled to give you one more message from 1 Peter. The passage we have for today is 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 25. It's another one of my favorites as it's a cherished passage on suffering. I remember preaching through this text maybe about nine years ago when we went through 1 Peter. And back then, the truth of this text was certainly impactful, but the application of the text felt theoretical. But I can say since then that just in life and in ministry, this has become an extremely practical go-to passage on how we are to respond to suffering. The Bible has so much to say about this, this subject. That alone should strike you, and you would do well to learn what the Bible says about how to respond to suffering long before it comes your way. And that's just wisdom. Living in a fallen world, it's just a matter of time before storm clouds roll through. But the wise and prudent prepare their household now that they will be ready. Not if, but when the time comes. And of all the passages that can guide your response, First Peter 2, 21 through 25, it's got to be near the top of the list because it gives us the greatest example of responding to suffering. It comes from Christ himself. Has there, any been, has there ever been anyone who has suffered as much as Jesus? And you factor in his spiritual affliction on the cross, and nobody comes close. Yet Jesus responded flawlessly, avoiding sin while being perfectly pleasing to his Father in heaven. And so here in this text, we get to behold and learn from the Master himself about how we can glorify God in our suffering. Verse 21 here even tells us to tells us that patiently enduring suffering is, is part of our calling. Verse 21 says, for you've been called for this purpose. At first glance, that sounds odd. You know, that, that one of the reasons God called us that we might patiently endure suffering. I mean, how could that be? How, how could a good and loving God want that for us? Before we look at the example of Jesus here, and that's our goal this morning, just to, to behold Christ's example in responding to suffering. But before we do that, I want to think on this a little. Let's kind of use verse 21 as our introduction to this text and introdu- introduction to this concept of suffering. Look at 1 Peter 2.21. He says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. He says, you've been called for this purpose. Scripture often refers to believers as the called. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He calls his people to receive it. But his calling also comes with a purpose. Something we reflected on last week from 1 Peter 2. But you can kind of think of God's calling like a draft. Any football fans here, you're familiar with the concept of a draft. Every year teams... Uh, have an opportunity to draft skilled players to fulfill specific roles on their team. So from a quarterback to a kicker, they're they're calling athletes with a purpose in mind. Same goes for the military. The last draft was in 1973. The government reserves the right to reinstate that draft. Although most people don't want to be drafted by the military, it has a similar function. The government is calling you to fulfill a specific purpose. But what do you think would happen to people who refused to live up to the purpose for which they were called? I mean, what if you had a guy drafted as a quarterback, but in practice, he refuses to throw the ball. He says he just wants to kick. What do you think his coach would tell him? He's like, that's, that's not why we drafted you. We drafted you to throw the ball. 
If you want to stay in the team, you better start throwing the ball. The same goes for soldiers, that the military is not calling you to travel the world and see the sights. They're calling you to serve and fight. And if you don't live up to the purpose for which you were called, you expect some consequences. And along these lines, you can somewhat think of God's calling like a draft. He drafted us onto his team, the church. He has called us to follow his son, Christ. But this calling like a draft, it, it comes with a purpose in mind. It's a purpose for which he has granted us salvation. What's the purpose? Scripture actually teaches there are have a superior or an authority who's harsh and unreasonable, who's unjustly mistreating you. Well, he says back in verse 19, actually, he says, for this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, the question is that God has another purpose, glory. But in sin, the, the image of God in man has been marred. We've fallen short of the glory of God. We, we don't glorify God. We, we sin against him. We rebel against our maker. But this is why God sent his son, Christ, to be like a second Adam, to redeem Adam's fallen race. And Jesus came to, to call us back to God. This is also why Jesus calls us to himself. He's, he's the God man. In Jesus, we are returning to our God. And in Christ, we see perfect humanity. And so for us to, to indeed dwell with God forever, we must be refashioned, remade into the image of Christ. This is a work God will do, but he's pleased to progressively start this work here and now. And the thing is, God knows that suffering just so happens to be a pretty good way to do that. In fact, there are a few things like suffering to make you more like Christ. And since we're talking eternal salvation here, what matters more? In God's eyes for us, there's nothing more valuable. This is really what Peter established in the opening words of his letter. Let's just be reminded, still by way of introduction, but go back to chapter 1, verse 3. After his introduction, he says this, 1 Peter 1, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. There's a lot in here, but he's saying how God's mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. We don't have a dead hope. We have a living hope. In Christ, we have the hope of eternal life made secure in the risen Christ. And so now in him, we've obtained this eternal inheritance. Our place in heaven is reserved. It's waiting for us. God is now protecting us with his power for that place. But you notice in verse 5 how God is protecting us. It's, it's through faith. God uses our faith as his means of protecting and preserving us. We're saved by faith. We are preserved by faith. Therefore, it already seems like it's 
seems like it's kind of a big deal for us to have a true, strong, robust, proven faith. And this explains what Peter says next. Look at verses 6 and 7. Talking about our salvation, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There are countless circumstances in this fallen world that will test and try our faith. But the believer patiently endures. He doesn't forsake God or or fall away. But in a time of trial, he or she clings to God even more. If you're on a a ship and you're in smooth sailing, you're free to walk about the deck. But in rough waters, you probably want to hold on to the rail. And in a storm, you're going to be latching that rail with all your strength. And those who respond to trials like this, who cling to the Lord, they find that their faith is not destroyed. It's actually refined. Verse 7 connects enduring trials to the proof of your faith. And look, what is more valuable than that? Proven faith. Peter says it's more precious than gold because proven faith yields present assurance, future glory. Look, with proven faith, you can now fully rest on God's promises with joy because now you know they're for you. Those promises apply to you. And verse 8, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And Though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of of your souls. These people were suffering greatly, but still rejoicing. You can't rejoice like this unless you know Christ and know that you know him. But see, that type of assurance takes proven faith and oftentimes proven faith takes trials. But God knows what he's doing for those whom he has called. He's good. He's faithful even to allow them, like these first Christians, to undergo various trials because he knows that's going to bring about his his greater purposes for them of securing their faith and making them more like Christ. That's not a bad thing. It's just so critical that you, you gain an understanding of God's deeper purposes in suffering. I mean, how else will you not be caught off guard when it comes? And it's probably going to come. How else will you ensure that you rightly respond? I mean, you don't wait for the storm to learn how to put on a life jacket or how to swim. You need to prepare to rightly respond well in advance. And this is all the more critical because scripture attests that not everyone who calls themselves a Christian will rightly respond. And that some, many even, respond to trials and adversity by falling away from the faith. And the trials have a way of sifting the true from the false. Just as they prove true faith, so they also disprove false faith. They have a way of, of melting away that fool's gold where it shows that it actually wasn't gold to begin with. Christ himself taught this in the parable of the, of the sower. 
in the parable of the sower, he talked about seeds sown on the rocky places. And they did not have much soil. Immediately they sprang up. They seemed to receive the word with joy, but they had no depth of soil. So when the sun came out and scorched them, they had no, nothing to fall back on. They, they withered away. They had no root. And in this parable, Jesus is describing people who are initially attracted to, to him, to Christianity, for, for various reasons. These are people who at first seem to happily accept Christ. I mean, they call themselves Christians. They start going to church. They, they believe that, that God is on their side. But as time goes on, you know, not, not everything is working out. I mean, now that they know God, shouldn't they be like healthier and wealthier? Why, why are they still having so much trouble in life? And then some major crisis hits. That they get news that they have a life-threatening disease. They get laid off at work. They can't make their house payments. They're forced to foreclose. Maybe they're, they're persecuted by others for associating with Christians. And just faith with some suffering, they, they hit a breaking point. I mean, they didn't sign up for this. They thought that, you know, believing in Jesus would help them get more of what they wanted out of life. They were looking for a savior who would, who would give them, you know, their desires. But they, they didn't sign up for a savior who would instead demand that they conform to his image. And so they fall away. And this happens more than you probably realize. Have you truly understood Christ's call? What did he say in this calling? Luke 9.23 is one common example. He said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. I mean, you, you, you say you want to follow Jesus for eternal life. But if you're going to do that, you, you have to first deny self. You have to forsake your corrupt desires and purposes in life. And trusting Jesus as Lord, you have to yield up control and direction of your life to him. And that's really the essence of faith. You can't follow Jesus and yourself at the same time. So examine yourself. Have, have you truly followed this Jesus, have you yielded your life to him? Have you bowed the knee to him, submitted to him as just your Lord, your God, your King? You're not kicking against him anymore, but you follow. And if so, then you're ready to accept the other part of his calling because he didn't just say, deny self and follow me. He said, deny yourself and then pick up your cross daily and then follow me. What do you think that's talking about? Pick up your cross daily. That's talking about suffering. You know, back then the cross was not just a cute little piece of jewelry. It was an instrument of death. The cross represents rejection, suffering, and death. And the verse before that in Luke, Jesus just said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by men and be killed and be raised up on the third day. I mean, that's where Jesus was headed with his cross. So when he tells you to pick up your cross and follow him, where do you think that means you're now headed? To, to the same place of suffering. Now look, the, the cross comes before the crown. There is glory. There is eternal life. But cross first. And if this is what, if the, the path of the Son of God had to go through the cross before glory and God's will, do you think it's going to be any different for you? 
And so are, are you sure you still want to follow him? Are you still willing to follow him, even if it means going through various trials, unjust treatment, suffering? This will test your faith. But I hope and I trust you, you still say yes, because Jesus is the only path to salvation. He's the only door to forgiveness. Where else are we going to go? To whom shall we go? And though this may still be hard, but because Christ is our treasure, because it's our destiny and our calling to be conformed to his image, we must then accept, even happily accept, Philippians 3.10, the fellowship of his sufferings. The fellowship of his sufferings. Look, I know this has been a, a meandering, long introduction on purpose, but we can sum it all up like this. God called us. We didn't call him. He, he called us. He drafted us to his church. And he did so with a purpose in mind. One of the immediate purposes was that we would patiently endure suffering. We have to accept that. But that is merely part of his ultimate purpose in calling us. To make us, to shape us more into the image of his son. God's going to finish that work in the next life. But in this life, he knows that there are a few things like trials, like fire, to make us more like Christ. Even the Lord himself did not escape the cross. But God was still good. He took that, that greatest evil, that greatest suffering, and he, he reshaped it into the greatest good. He's still doing that. And so in all, we, we need to be made aware of, of God's deeper purposes in suffering. So that we might not be caught off guard, that we might not fall away, that we might rightly respond when it's our turn. And hopefully this, this already helps you gain a, a, a more biblical understanding of God's purposes in suffering. Now, with all this in mind, we, we can switch gears. Because if suffering is just is part of our calling, if picking up our cross is just it's part of following Jesus, so be it. All right, then how do you do it? How do you suffer well? How do you suffer to the glory of God? I mean, rightly responding is no cakewalk. What does it look like? And this now is where the example of Jesus comes in. And that's, that's really what verse 21 is about. So let's continue. Go back to verse 21 of 1 Peter 2. Let's switch gears and look at the example of Christ now. He says, for you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Now, look, Christ's death on the cross wasn't just an example. It was an actual atonement, right? He died in our place. He satisfied God's wrath for our sins. So he wasn't just dying on the cross to give us an example. But that being said, the way he handled the cross, he certainly was giving us an example. And that's what Peter is drawing out. And there are two great pictures in this verse. The first is the word for example. It means underwriting. And this is the use of the pattern that children would use to learn to write. They would trace letters. You take a pattern, you'd put it under a piece of paper and trace over it. And that's a great illustration of what Christ is to us. He's, he's our pattern. We're, we're to follow his life closely. We're to trace our lives around his life. And also, verse 21 says, we are to follow in his steps. 
He switches from the image of a pattern to that of a guide. It's like a guide leaving behind his footprints to follow along the path of Jesus. Now, like we know we can't fully fill his shoes. It's like a little kid following his father in the snow. His feet are too big. Our stride is too small. We can't, we can't perfectly walk like Jesus walked. But what Peter is talking about here is that we walk in the same direction. To follow him is to share his destination. It's to stay on course, to go where he has gone. This is what God wants of us. This is Christ. He's our savior here. He's our example. And like Christ said, a slave is not greater than his master. We call him Lord. We follow him. That means there will be times where we must bear a type of cross ourselves. We encounter his sufferings. And in that moment, we're meant to look to him, remember him, and then what? just patiently endure like him. Let's learn to do that now. So we continue to think on the trials of this life. Let's, let's consider the example of Christ. How did he suffer? How did he respond? How did he endure? And so really with the second half of our time now, let's behold that the twofold example of Jesus enduring suffering from the rest of this text, the twofold example of Jesus enduring suffering that, that you all might be conformed to his image in all ways. The twofold example of Jesus enduring suffering. In verses 22 and 23 gives us the negative example, what he didn't do. And then the positive example, what he did do. So simple enough, let's just consider that first. What he did not do. How he didn't respond. Look at verse 22. Mentioning Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. Verse 22. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. So here, Peter, in describing how Jesus suffered, he first gives us four really quick examples of what Jesus did not do. Let's learn from these. First, it says he committed no sin. That the sinlessness of Jesus is attested throughout the entire New Testament. I mean, sin can be defined as anything that is displeasing to God, anything that goes against God's will. Jesus never did that. John eight twenty nine. he attested, I always do the things that are pleasing to him, the Father. 1 John 3, 5 says, in him there is no sin, Christ. And look, even Christ's own accusers broke down and eventually testified of his innocence. Pilate exclaimed, I find no guilt in this man. And even Judas later said, I have betrayed innocent blood. I mean, have you ever been busted for something that you didn't actually do? Maybe you got pulled over, you get a speeding ticket, but you really weren't speeding. Truly, you were, it was some misunderstanding, something happened, but you actually weren't speeding. So when you get the ticket, I mean, you fume over it. It just, it feels so unjust, so wrong. Now you've got to pay for something you didn't do. But in that moment, do you, do you stop and think about all the times you really were speeding, but you just didn't get a ticket? And that's just one of the many differences between Jesus and us, because you might be innocent from time to time, but over the course of your life, who is without guilt? Who's innocent? We are all very guilty. But Jesus was truly forever innocent. 
He never sinned, not once. He never fell short. That means all of his suffering, all of his unjust treatment was always undeserved. I mean, of all the people who ever had a reason to protest and rebel against their unjust suffering, it is Jesus. The wages of sin is death. Being suffering, or being sinless rather, Jesus didn't deserve an ounce of suffering or death. Yet he still accepted it and then just patiently endured it. I hope you appreciate the magnitude of this, that the fact that Jesus accepted the cross, which he didn't deserve at all. Already that gives us the greatest example of just patiently enduring unjust suffering. Then this is especially helpful when, when our suffering comes at the hands of someone else, a persecutor. Secondly, Peter writes that in addition to this, no deceit was found in his mouth. If you haven't picked up on it, Peter is referencing in this passage, Isaiah 53, which is a well-known prophecy of the Messiah, God's servant, who would be what? Suffering servant. What does it tell you that it was always God's plan for his Messiah to be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief? I mean, again, already this means you can go to Jesus with your suffering. He's well acquainted with grief. You know grief? He knows grief more. You can go to him with your grief, your pain, your loss. He's the one who died so that you won't have to suffer eternally. He endured all of this suffering on your behalf. And, and while enduring, Peter says, there was no deceit found in his mouth. And some people say the eyes are the window to the soul. That's wrong. It's the mouth. The mouth is the window to the soul. Christ taught that what comes out of your mouth comes directly from your heart. Your inner man. But since Jesus had no sin in his heart, this is why he had no sin in his speech. Not once. And according to his half-brother James, that's the mark of a perfect man. If any man has perfect speech, he's a perfect man. James 3, 2. He says, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. That's not true of a single one of us. It's only true for Christ, the perfect man. And he never stumbled with his speech. Here he refused to deceive. This is talking about being cunning or sly. And think about it. When Christ was on trial, he could have deceived. He could have been cunning to get his way out of it. He could have talked to talk, denied the charges, done something to get out of it. But he refused. No deceit was found in him. This might be a trite example, but think of getting pulled over for speeding again. This time you really were speeding and you know it. But you don't want the ticket, so what do you do? Would you deceive? Would you spin a little tail, stretch the truth, to just kind of improve the chances that the cop will let you go? Are you willing to deceive to get out of trouble? Jesus never was, and this is the way. This is the way in which we're called to follow. Sin is is never the way to ease your suffering. You, You might think it is, but... It's not. It will only ever make your suffering worse. And that's definitely the case for this this third action from which Jesus abstained. Continuing verse 23, it says, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And here Peter's channeling Isaiah 53 verse 7. Speaking of the suffering servant, it says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. 
And like a sheep that is silent before its shearer, so he did not open his mouth. Do you know how much Jesus was reviled during his ministry? He was called a devil, a Samaritan, a glutton, a drunkard, a blasphemer, a demoniac, a deceiver, and more. And what did he do to deserve this slander? He didn't do anything ever wrong. This was all unjust and uncalled for. And then during his trial, crucifixion, he was mocked and slandered even more. People took turns to come up to him on the cross just to throw in a few more punches. Even the two thieves who were being justly condemned next to him got in on the action and reviled him. But not once did he revile in return. He never sinned in his speech. And if only we could be like this more, because usually the first way we fall is with our speech. It doesn't take much. Suffering robs us of control. When we suffer, we're usually losing something we value and that there's nothing we can do about it. But at least we can lash out at the one afflicting us. And so if it's another person, we will slander them, we'll revile them. Or if we think it's God, we'll blaspheme. Just like Job's wife. But once again, this is not the way. This is not the way of the Lord or the right response. Christ's example, it's taken us in the opposite direction. Look, he had the power of speech. He could have just like spoken his tormentors out of existence. He could have called down the angels. He could have delivered himself. He could have smited them. could have done so many things. But he refrained. He just refused to sin or take revenge with his words by reviling in return. And may we likewise be compelled to refrain by the spirit to not revile in return. Lastly here from verse 23, it says, while suffering, he uttered no threats. This is similar to reviling. When, when someone causes you to suffer and you don't have the power to get them back, at least you can threaten them. I mean, just, just you wait, I'll get back at you. I will sue you. Something like that. But you're going to try and cause them some anxiety and fear. Just subtly get back at them for harming you because you can't do anything else about it. But again, Jesus never resorted to any of this. During the crucifixion, he was spat upon, hit in the face, beaten with fists, slapped, beaten in the head with a rod, stripped, subjected to a crown of thorns, whipped, lashed, and then nailed to a cross. We read this and think like, at least threaten them. At least tell them you're going to judge them. Do something. But he's just silent. He says and does nothing. The only thing he says is, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. He's just, he's not going to wrongly respond. He's not going to sin or deceive, revile, or threaten like we would. But as we reflect on Christ's sufferings, Peter bringing out the sufferings he, he saw, He's not bringing this up just for us to, to think about, but for us to imitate. This is our, our pattern. We're to trace our lives around this pattern, around this response to suffering. That this should be now our response to various trials. And just think, like, have you, probably not, I guess, but have you ever been unjustly treated? And it's from probably super rare, but have you ever been unjustly treated in the world? In the past, in the present? How have you been made to suffer? Have you ever been persecuted for the faith at work, in the home? Maybe you feel this pressure. Maybe, maybe a relative pokes fun at you every time you bring up the church. 
Maybe there's a coworker who just really doesn't like you because of your faith and your values. Maybe your spouse slanders you when you try and honor the Lord, you try and do what is right, but they just kind of throw in your face all the things you do wrong. These times will come. There are a million ways we will be made to suffer, often unjustly. How will you respond? The point we're, we're making so far is that we need to take to heart, learn from the pattern of Christ. First, how not to respond. What not to do. His suffering was infinitely worse, but he just refused to sin, to deceive, to revile, to threaten. We must do the same. As much as you want to lash out at someone, get back, get even. We're called to be like Christ in his patient enduring of suffering. We'll see pretty soon when we come back to Matthew. Matthew 5, verse 38 through 39, where Christ said, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. I think for some people, this might be the hardest verses in the Bible. But we must remember that the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. We need to let ourselves be challenged by how Jesus did not respond to his various trials. Because all too often, this is how we respond. It doesn't even take much suffering or unjust treatment. It could be something relatively minor. Even still, think of some, some trial, some tribulation you've gone through, a hardship. And could it truly be said of you that through it all, you never sinned? No deceit, no sin was found in your mouth. Could that, could that be said? I wish. And when we wrongly respond like this, you know, it, it dishonors God. and only ends up harming us more. The tragedy is that, you know, whenever you're made to unjustly suffer and you respond with your own sin, you fight fire with fire, you, you unleash anger or, or verbal violence, you know that you're just going to invite more suffering on yourself, right? Like when was the last time that you found that, that adding sin ever made your suffering better? Has that ever worked? It's never worked. Look, you're not in control of your life. Suffering reminds you of that. When that happens, your flesh wants, you, wants to, to shake your fist at God or others who are doing this to you. But, but don't listen to your flesh. Listen to the Lord. Follow him. Refrain from sin. Even if you don't know what to do, well, at least you know what not to do. I'm not going to sin. I'm not going to use my speech to hurt others. Now, this isn't quite enough. It's, it's vital that you put off the wrong response and follow Christ in his righteousness. But that also includes putting on the right response. How did he respond? Okay, this is what he didn't do. So what did he do when made to suffer? And so secondly, let's consider, well, number two, what he did do. It's down to the end of verse 23, but and back to verse 22. Christ, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But this is what he did. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. This is in the present tense. Jesus was continually entrusting himself to God. And this, this is what you need to do. This is the attitude you must put on to endure. You must not depend on yourself or others, but on God. To entrust here means to hand over. And when the criminal wants to give up, what does he do? He, he hands himself over to the authorities. He's entrusting himself 
to the authority of the police. And far from causing you anxiety, though, when, when you hand yourself over to God, that should bring you great peace because he's good. And like verse 23 says, he judges righteously. God is perfectly holy and just. His judgments are no different. That means he's going to right all wrongs in the end. He will judge righteously. He'll take care of things. Again, in context here, our, our, our sufferings unjustly inflicted by others. When you're wronged, you want justice. You might want revenge. You want vengeance. The other person needs to pay for what they've done. But like you, you leave that to God. We too are sinners. We, we deserve God's vengeance. Christ took that from us, paid it for us. And as for us, when others offend us, we're not the judge, the jury, or the executioner. We, God will judge. You need to trust him to right these wrongs in the end. This is just like Psalm 73. And there the, the psalmist is, is plagued wondering like, why are the wicked prospering? The righteous suffer. The righteous are being persecuted. Meanwhile, the, the wicked, they're, they're prospering. They seem to be getting away with it. It's just not fair. He cries out. But as he looks up and remembers God, he, he gains perspective. And this is what he says. Psalm 73 verse 16. He says, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Speaking of the wicked, surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They're utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Vengeance belongs to God. He will repay. Romans twelve nineteen. That's, that's not our place. Yeah, of course we call out sin, but this type of retribution, this vengeance, judgment, it belongs to the Lord. And so we don't repay evil with evil. We're called to Romans 12, repay evil with good. That involves enduring unjust treatment, just like Jesus did, trusting God. You need to let your burning anger toward those who have wronged you simmer. You just you yield it to the Lord, part of following Christ. That's not mine. I, I yield it to him. That's the only way you'll be able to James 1, 2. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. The hard, hardest part of that is when other people are the various trial. But once again, suffering reminds you you're not in control. But you need to remember, that doesn't mean things are out of control. Just because you're not in control doesn't mean things are out of control. Things are never out of control. They're always fully in God's control. We can't help but quote again the, the quintessential verse you know at Romans 8.28. It says that we know God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. There's that calling again. What's the purpose? The next verse. That we would be conformed to the image of his son. God's in control. He's using all of our trials, including unjust suffering, to shape us, to prove our faith, to prepare us for eternity. So will you just simply believe God is good? He is in control. This, this does come down to a matter of faith, a restful trust in God's hands. When you lash out, when you take matters into your own hands, really, it's, it's an act of unbelief. It's a momentary act of doubt. You're giving into the lie that, that God is either not good or he's not in control. Things are out of control. I have to do something about it. 
When will you just trust God as God? I know this counsel can seem cheap sometimes that whenever someone suffers, our immediate response is like, oh, you just need to trust the Lord. Just trust God. Look, that is the right counsel, but what does that really mean? This is why I appreciate Peter in this passage so much because he uses a slightly different word. He says not trust, but entrust. Entrust. That's what Jesus did. He entrusted himself to the Lord. And it's a fitting picture. And that's really what trusting God is all about. You're entrusting yourself, your care, judgment to the Lord. You're placing yourself in God's hands. And in reality, as a believer, you're never out of his hands. It's just that when you suffer and things are out of your control, you want to wiggle and kick out of God's hands as if you could rule your life better. But you can't. You don't want to be outside of God's hands, even for a second. Even if that means sometimes you pass through the fire. You don't want to be out of his sovereign care. But he says, just trust him. That, that You stop kicking against him. You yield the illusion of control you have over life's circumstances. And that means you, you stop fighting God and others for control. And by faith, your response, you're just going to rest in his promises. Going back to that, that proven faith. All that he promises, they're mine. I'm going to rest in these promises. You take God's character, his revealed will, and you rest. You find peace. You think to yourself, God, you know what? God is good. He is wise. He's sovereign. He is in control. That means even in my suffering, he's at work for good purposes. What are those good purposes? Well, I know to make me like Christ, to prove my faith, to make me fit for eternity. And so I know that all the trials of this life work to that end. I can yield to that. Accept that. I may not understand everything he's doing, but I'm, I'm not going to fight him anymore. I entrust my soul to his care. And i tell you what I won't do. I, I know I'm not going to sin. I need to just follow Christ's example of righteousness, even when made to suffer. This is it. This is the, the example, the pattern the Lord left for us to follow. Let's be reminded, you really can trust this Lord because he did more than leave you an example. As a bonus, look at verse 24, where Peter reminds us that that Christ, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. Here we're reminded of something we can't bear to forget, even for a day, that Jesus died for you. He, He wasn't just an example. And he really bore our sins on the cross. And that the phrase, our sins, is emphatic, stands at the front in the Greek, that our sins he took up and bore. And, and to bear up means to carry up to a high place. It pictures bringing that sacrifice to the altar, which was elevated. The altar was always elevated. You're bringing up your sacrifice. Except that here, that there's no animal. It's Christ. He's the one who ascended that altar, the cross, and he did that to take our sins before the Father to make payment, not even his own. I mean, you want to talk about unfair suffering or unjust, in a sense, suffering. Just just look at the cross. Isaiah 53, 6 says that all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. I mean, we're the guilty ones. We're the guilty sinners who deserve God's wrath, not, not Jesus. 
Verse 25 here adds, for you were continually straying like sheep. We were the wayward ones. We're the ones kicking against our maker, running away from him, rebelling against him. But this Jesus became the lamb of God. He ascended up the altar of the cross and he purchased for God with his own blood, us. And that's why the rest of Isaiah 53, 6 says that, that the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And by his wounds, you were healed. Jesus gives us new spiritual, eternal life. He's the cure to a sick soul. The ancient Christian Theodoret said, quote, a new and strange method of healing. The doctor suffered the cost and the sick received the healing, end quote. And that's very true. We, we need to remember this. Reflect on what Christ did for us. This, this doesn't make your trouble go away. This doesn't make automatically your suffering vanish. But it, it does shift your focus in life and it helps you to rightly interpret everything going on around you. The Savior already suffered and died to redeem you. Now you can see the adversity and affliction no longer is a sign that God hates you, that he's cursed you. I mean, he already, for you who believe, he already sent his son to die on the cross. What more could he do to prove he loves you and is working for you? So instead, entrust yourself to God. And you can now see your sufferings as a sign. He is at work for you to make you like his son. And so like verse 25 says to end, just return, return to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. This sheep, Christ, has also become a shepherd. The Lamb of God also became the good shepherd. And he cares for you, he cares for your soul. To entrust your soul to him now, like he entrusted his life to the Father. You now are to entrust your life, your soul, your care to him. That, that's a safe move because he cares for you. Satan may offer you the pleasures in the kingdoms of the world. But do you think he's going to care for your soul? Now, to whom shall we go? Christ is the only way, the only savior, the only good shepherd, the only one who will care for your soul and safely bring you to his kingdom. You must trust him. Suffering will darken your door one day from just the trials of life to here, the unjust treatment from others. But prepare yourself now. By getting to know your God who has eternally good plans and purposes for you in mind. And prepare yourself now by getting to know your Savior who already gave himself up for you. And so draw near to your God and Savior. You need to create a well-worn path to him. One which you travel daily. So when difficult times come, you know right where to go. Right where to turn. You will draw nearer. You will follow Christ's example, you will fulfill the purposes for which you were called. We'll let Peter have the last word. Let me leave you with 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, where he says this. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, Keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Let's pray together.
Our Father in heaven, that's, that's our desire and our, our charge this morning. As we reflect on suffering, which is sadly now a, a reality in this fallen world, a world cursed as we have fallen short of the glory of God and in sin invite a host of our own suffering upon ourselves. We all know what it is to suffer one way or another. And even now in following you, we can expect unjust treatment from others. We'll have suffering upon suffering, various trials as we've learned. These tempt us to turn away from you, to, to cling to control, to, to go our own way. But may we, we learn and be convicted from the example, the pattern of our good Savior, who did more than just lead us. He, he died for us. He suffered for us eternally in a way we will never understand fully. That we might return to you, the, the shepherd, the guardian of our souls. And so, so convict us this morning to turn, to return, to, to make a path to you, to know it well. We all know our day will come when trouble and trial will, will come our way. But help us learn wisdom now. What does it look like to respond, to, to be like our Savior? And convict us what not to do, what to do, how to endure, how to, to look above uh, and see Christ, uh, the perfect God-man who endured. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. He sat down at the right hand of God. So may we fix our eyes on him, this author, this perfecter of our faith. Give us a sight and vision of Christ our Savior. For those here who, who are suffering, who are troubled, may they turn to you. May they, they trust you and really entrust their souls to your care. You are good. You are in control. Fix our minds on these truths. We want to glorify you in all things, even when we suffer. But we thank you that we can rest in your promises, that you will safely deliver us to your eternal kingdom. You will make us like your son. So we long for Christ, the revelation of his glory. And that day we will rejoice. May our rejoicing start even now in your good purposes for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.